Hi, I'm Andrew J. Boyle. Welcome to North by Norway. On the 28th of July this year, it will be exactly 100 years since an extraordinary event took place in the tiny mountain village of Leshaskog. In the cultural history of modern Norway, there's nothing quite like it. Although, in fact, no Norwegians took part, and <laughs> you'd be hard put to find it described in any book published in Norwegian. And put in the simplest terms, it wouldn't, it shouldn't, raise an eyebrow. It involves an Englishman, fond of Norway, gets to the top of a mountain, enjoys the view. What makes it such an extraordinary event? Well, I've got a story to tell you that can be related in two ways, quickly and less quickly. Here's the quick version. Three questions. One, who was the man? Two, how did he get to the top of that mountain? Three, what makes it worth knowing by anyone who loves music and who is interested in Norway? Well, first, who's this man I'm talking about? He's the English composer, Frederick Delius. In 1923, a hundred years ago, he is 61 years old. Since around 1900, his fame as a composer has made him one of the most sought-after names in European classical music. He has been to Norway for 20 summers, and what he finds here in the mountains, well... It becomes a vital part of his music. So much so that he and his wife, Jelka, build a summer cottage in Leshaskog. The village lies halfway between Dombos, high in the Gudbrandsdal valley, and the west coast at Ondalsnes. But Delius is not a well man. He's losing his eyesight and the use of his legs. So, number two. If his legs were weak, how did he get to the top of that mountain? Well, he was carried in a simple blue kitchen chair. Yes, the chair shown on the episode photo. And question number three. So what? What makes it worth knowing by anyone who loves music or is interested in Norway? In September last year, I was at Grieghallen, the Grieg concert hall in Bergen along with many hundreds of people, to hear Delius's Mass of Life, performed on two nights by the Bergen Philharmonic. Later this year, his Song of the High Hills for orchestra and choir will be performed in Amsterdam and other Dutch cities. Now, whether in Holland or in Norway or in Germany and even in his home country, England, there are very few people who realise that the mountain landscapes of Norway are at the very core of the music he wrote. Delius was the greatest singer of Norway's mountain nature. That's not well known. Nor that, on that day in July 1923, he took his farewell to the mountains from a summit in Leshaskog, before being carried down again over moor and marsh, through bushes and forest. 
It was a huge feat of endurance and of love by those closest to Delius to get him to the top and down again. And if you'd like to hear what it was that inspired them to do so, well, let's take a slightly slower look at what led to it happening. Delius was once asked if he would like to settle on a Pacific island, as some of his painter friends had done. He replied, Oh, I would never think of settling too far from my beloved Norway. The light summer nights, and all the poetry and melancholy of the northern summer, and the high mountain plateaus, where humans are rare but more individual than in any other country in the world and where they also have deeper and more silent feelings. Frederick Delius travels to Norway on 20 occasions during his adult life, visiting for periods of one to three months. Initially he's attracted to the country for much the same reasons as countless other Britons fleeing their industrialised landscape. But his Norwegian journeys gain ever greater significance in his career. He comes to regard them as crucial to the health of his artistic process. If he is prevented from visiting Norway for more than two summers, he becomes restless. He senses that his creative direction is becoming more difficult to determine. One such break in the chain of visits is caused by the First World War, when submarines and mines make sea crossings too hazardous. In a letter to her husband, Jelka Delius bemoans the turn of events. Oh, it's dreadful that we're cut off from Norway. I never felt so strongly before that it's really a necessity for you. On another occasion, she describes Norway as The land of Fred's constant longing. Whenever he was asked how he came to be a composer, Delius pointed to Florida as the place where he, as a young man, had decided on an artistic life. At the time, he was cultivating oranges on the plantation. On returning from America, he studied music at Leipzig and then moved to Paris, where he enjoyed to the full the bohemian pleasures sought by many artists in the 1890s. And for the last 35 years of his life, his home was in a rural French village. Places rich in colour, or exotic nature, or urban energy. Such sensual locations always beckoned to Delius. Nevertheless, 
at regular intervals, he needed to pack his bags, flee northwards, in order to get his old self back again, as he put it. His physical energy was restored by weeks of bathing by the Oslo Fjord, sometimes with his close friend Edvard Munch. But to restore his self-belief, and to find again his artistic direction, he travelled on to the great Norwegian mountains again and again and again. Of course, Norway, as an essential active ingredient, is easily recognisable in his output. Some 33 compositions, large and small, were inspired by his Norwegian experiences or were settings of texts by Norwegian poets. There would be music depicting a Norwegian sleigh ride and Norwegian folk tales. There would be music full of longing for the Norwegian summer and the call of the cuckoo deep in the birch woods. There would be incidental music for Norwegian theatres. And above all else, there would be a series of works powered by emotions he associated with journeys in the Norwegian mountains, such as the music that's playing called Over the Hills and Far Away. The greatest of these mountain scores is The Song of the High Hills. In Paris in 1895, Delius contracts syphilis. He's 33, and at the centre of a circle of artists who split their lives between work and then evenings in the cafes and salons of Montparnasse and Montrouge. Among his closest friends in the city are August Strindberg, Paul Gauguin and Edvard Munch. After becoming ill, Delius withdraws a good deal from the social whirl and devotes himself to his work and to keeping healthy, living a quiet life with his painter-wife, Jelka, in the village of Grès-sur-Loire, near Fontainebleau. With the outbreak of war in 1914, however, new strain is placed on his nerves and constitution. As the Germans advance into France, the couple are compelled to flee to England, and the tensions of conflict and exile affect Delius badly. In 1915 he's having great difficulty walking unaided, and doctors advise him to find some secluded spot where he can work on his health. So he and Jelka brave the dangers of submarines and mines, and set out from Newcastle for Norway. In the beloved hills, his condition rallies, his creative powers return to full strength. But once the Germans start taking English passengers off North Sea ferries, their travels are at an end until the armistice in 1918. With the war over, the Deliuses are in Norway every summer. In 1921, their route takes them to a tiny village in the wide upper reaches of the Gudbrandsdal, just before the gentle valley sides are pinched into the jagged, towering cliffs of Rumstal. 
from Leschalskog, Jelka rides to a friend. We are up here in the high hills, in the most heavenly sunshine and fresh air of the snow mountains. After that hard season in London, oh, this is perfectly delicious. Fred is doing a little trout fishing, and we wander about in the lovely birch and pine woods, plucking lilies of the valley. It's only spring here, and the snow is still melting, making the little streams all rush down the hillsides. And it's so light in the evening we read in bed at 11pm. The tranquil setting, remote from the tourist trails further south, captivates them, and they make a, a bold move. A plot of land is purchased from a local farmer, and arrangements made to have a small cottage built on the slope of Liahovdene, the hill above the Leschaskog village. The following winter brings deterioration in Delius's health. He's losing the use of his legs, and his eyesight is growing cloudy. But in the summer of 1922, they return to Leschaskog. We're quite delighted with our little hut up here. It was a tremendous moment when we saw it standing quite finished on the hillside. Tomorrow the piano we hired has to be pulled up the steep hillside by two horses. Oh, it will be an awful affair. And they are first going to take up a big trunk and the kitchen stove as a sort of rehearsal. There's a lovely big veranda in front of the hut. And the view is perfectly beautiful and ever-changing. And the absolute stillness up there. Their cottage is still part of the Overly farm. And the farmer Sigurd Overly, who is a wonderful fiddle player, comes to Delius to play folk dances. Initial optimism about Delius's condition is, however, dashed when the weather turns for the worse. A third and final summer is spent at Leschaskog in 1923. Frederick and Jelka are joined by a maidservant called Senta and by their close friend Percy Granger. The extrovert Australian composer and piano virtuoso is now 41 and has been through a traumatic year since the suicide of his mother to whom he was very close. For Delius too, it must have been an emotional time. He was aware that he wouldn't be coming back to Norway. So Granger decides that Delius should not leave without seeing the hills one last time. Just fancy what he did. Fred was longing to go up the hill at the back of our hut because there's a heavenly view of the high snow mountains and a great solitude with no trace of humans up there. So Percy arranged a chair and two poles drew it and straps and ropes for all three of us. Percy in front, Santa and I at the back, all strapped in like horses. And in this way we carried Fred up to the top. With our wraps and overcoats and having to carry our lunch and all sorts of things, 
It was an awfully heavy job, but we couldn't get any Norwegians to help us. As you can see from the episode photo of the chair, it's simple in design, has three legs, each curving slightly outwards, supporting a semicircular seat. It was once painted matte blue, but now much of the colour has been worn away. It took us seven and a half hours, as we had to rest so often. And we had to go over stones and rocks, up the steep mountain, through snowfields and rain clouds, and bogs and becks. It really was a tremendous job. But Delius got his last view of the mountains. From the summit of Liahovdene, under high clouds, you can look to the western horizon and have a deep field of vision, uninterrupted for half a county. The reindeer plateaus of Reinheimen, sheer snow cliffs of the Rumsdal Valley, and the peaks of Tafjur with their spines to you, looking down on the fjords of Vestlande, the west country. According to later accounts, the rain clouds did part to reward the group with a brief view of the panorama. We came home in triumph at 9pm, having been watched from below with telescopes and marvelled at by the locals. Fred was very cold and tired, but all the better for the beloved mountaineer. It wasn't a huge ascent they made, a modest climb for any unencumbered hiker. For a group carrying a man in a low-slung chair, the accomplishment seems barely credible, particularly in the first half of the climb, where the mountain path rises steeply through brush and woodland. At least two stretches of the trail are so steep, it's difficult to imagine the party being able to proceed unless Delius was physically carried by Granger. The cottage was replaced by a more modern one in the 1950s, but the simple blue chair, well, that got passed down in the Overly family and is today the proud possession of the granddaughter of Sigurd, the fiddle player who sold the plot of land to Delius. Now, if you think I sound enthusiastic about the mountain music of Delius, you'd be right. And I wish copyright restrictions didn't stop me playing you some of the Song of the High Hills. But one thing I can do is recommend our wonderful book that came out in 2017 called Delius and Norway. I can't recommend it highly enough. On this subject... The best book I've written, I mean read, in the last few years. There's a postscript to our story. How did things go with Delius? Well, by 1925 he was blind and becoming increasingly paralysed. And up to his death in 1934... He and Jelka lived a calm, secluded life in France. But as long as his mind was clear, Delius could not resign himself to the fact that his composing days were over. 
He had sketches for unborn works. Their growth suddenly arrested, but their image in his mind still animate and vivid. In 1928, a sort of miracle happened. A young Yorkshire musician, Eric Fenby, had heard that a composer was worried and unhappy because it was physically impossible for him to continue and finish his life's work. So Fenby wrote and offered his services as an amanuensis. Off and on for exactly four years, this unparalleled partnership worked together, completing some eight or nine wonderful large scores. Next time, Edvard Munch, in his own words. But for now, tschüss und Tag für Thanks for listening. <laughs>